1: Hello and welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion of UK politics at Westminster and beyond with me, Miranda Green. Joining me today are George Parker, our political editor, and Sebastian Payne, who the alert among you will realise is not in his usual chair here as host, but out on the campaign trail with the Tory leadership contenders. We'll be picking over the fruit from the magic money tree that Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt seem to have located And then James Blitz, our Whitehall editor, will join us to discuss the idea of a looming general election. So, Seb, you are out in the Darlington sunshine with yet another hustings for the Conservative members. George, you and I are here in our cool FT studio. But is this contest sort of heating up or is it already boiled over because the postal ballots are landing on the doorsteps? Is it, in fact, game over for Hunt already? You were tweeting that some members are already returning their papers, so it might look like a done deal.
0: Yeah, that's kind of interesting. At the start of this contest, the um, Conservative Party said that people would receive their ballot papers between the 6th and the 8th of July, but people were receiving them on the 4th or even the 3rd, I think, some people, and uh, it seemed a bit odd that they seemed running ahead of themselves, and that seemed to benefit the front runner. you would think, who would benefit from a shorter campaign, in this case Boris Johnson. And what I'm told by Brandon Lewis, the chairman of the Conservative Party, is that it was always their intention to send them out early, but they didn't want to give people the impression they'd be arriving on the 3rd or 4th, because if they were delayed, they'd be inundated with thousands of people ringing central office saying, where's my ballot paper? So anyway, the ballot papers have gone out and people are starting to vote. And at the moment, as far as we can tell, in the absence of any reliable polling, Boris Johnson is significantly ahead. That's what all the anecdotal evidence seems to suggest. Even though Jeremy Hunt, it seems, has made some headway in the last couple of weeks and is closing the gap. But whether he can close the gap quickly enough is something Seb is trying to assess out on the road in Darlington today.
1: So Seb, what does it really feel like out there? Is Boris Johnson displaying the signs of someone who thinks it is in the bag? What's the mood in
2: the hall? Well I think over the last week and a half of the campaign, Boris has lightened up an awful lot. Now that the questions about his personal life have gone into the background and he's focusing on his rhetoric about believing in Britain, about being optimistic. And he's much more in his comfort zone. I've just watched one of the hustings here at the Darlington Hippodrome and Boris's whole performance was bluster, and it was full of lots of purple prose, and he referenced Middlesbrough Palmer, a local delicacy. He said it would be protected under a no-deal Brexit. He said that free ports, which would create a port without customs or trade barriers in Teesside, is something that he thinks would be great, and he made lots of the same jokes, he said, throughout this contest. On the other hand, Jeremy Hunt has settled into his skin a bit more in this contest, that he's been more cheerful. I think he's got more of an idea of what He's trying to get across now. And I think if this contest was longer, then it could end up being a lot closer. But given how far ahead Boris Johnson is, I'd still be surprised if there's not a clear 10-point lead, if not more, when the results come out at the end of July here. Because when you listen to the audience, it was constant laughs and amusements for everything Boris said. And you can just see how he makes Tories feel good about themselves, where in a way Jeremy Hunt is calm and collected. And yes, he put a few good jokes in. But it's just an entirely different ball game between the two candidates. And I think both campaigns know that. For the Johnson campaign, it's really about making sure he stays as on message as possible and doesn't say anything too silly. And for the Jeremy Hunt campaign, it's trying to convince them that he is the calm, best administrator to see us through these choppy waters. Boris Johnson was
1: endorsed, no surprise there, by The Telegraph this week. And they dubbed him Mr Brexit. Is it really down to that? Is it that the audience is thinking, here's our guy, and he'll do this job for us and this is the main thing we care about? Or is there any tough questioning on on the
2: Brexit issue, on no deal, or indeed on other policies? At these hostings, there were actually very few questions on Brexit. There was a lot about general elections, appealing to younger people. There was a bit of stuff on the Northern Irish border question, which obviously we've been through so many times before. But generally, all of the questions from the audience was just about how to reinvigorate the Conservative Party. And when you want this kind of emotional sense that we need to get back together, we need to get this thing resolved, and we need to beat Jeremy Corbyn, Boris's message goes down so well here. And what I've been trying to figure out, Figure out is is there any momentum for Jeremy Hunt, and we should say it's so hard to judge because this is an electorate that's now gone up to one hundred eighty thousand. The party announced they've added on the twenty thousand members, which is actually quite extraordinary growth. But there's no real way of measuring this. There's polls on the Conservative Home website, but the methodology for those polls is not particularly accurate. There's the bookmakers, which is who's chucking money on which candidate. And there's not been a YouGov survey for quite a long time. So in terms of measuring momentum, you know, I've spoken to activists and I'd say, yes, Jeremy Hunt does have some momentum. People are flipping round to him slowly, but I don't think it's at a fast enough rate to really win him this race.
1: George, what do you think about that, the idea that, we in the kind of political and media circles are kind of obsessing about their differing Brexit stances, but that actually for the Conservative Party, this is a question about its health and its ability to become a dominant force again, and even to maintain its existence. It's almost like two different conversations.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, both of them really have focused on the idea of getting Brexit out of the way and delivering it by October the 31st and almost wishing away the emotional strain and trauma of the last three years and thinking it can be swept away very quickly in the autumn, which, of course, I think we probably can agree it won't be. It's going to be really difficult for either candidate, particularly Boris Johnson, to deliver that do-or-die October the 31st message. But you're right. They do want to move on to this wider agenda. And the Boris Johnson campaign has this slogan, which we've discussed before, which is deliver Brexit then unify, they mean unify the party and the country with a series of spending commitments and also tax cutting, and then defeat defeat Jeremy Corbyn in an election which some Conservative MPs think could happen very quickly, some people think later and possibly next year, but certainly not too far away. So they are looking at how can they save themselves beyond Brexit,
1: really. Seb, what's going on with their sort of tactical moves? Because particularly in the past week, both camps are sort of throwing out this array of spending pledges and tax cut promises. It must be making Philip Hammond and the Chancellor's ears bleed hearing all this. They're both sort of saying they can honour these pledges possibly even in the event of a no-deal Brexit. What's going on here? Does the Conservative Party sort of decided to put the last nine years of fiscal prudence and an emphasis on fiscal prudence behind it? Is that part of the yearning for a land beyond Brexit?
2: Well, it's funny. At these hustings here, Boris was asked, is austerity a dead duck? And he gave a riff about how he was on a plane to Dublin. And it was full of dead ducklings going to a Chinese restaurant in Dublin, he thought. And a chap on Twitter pointed out to me that, in fact, all the ducks go in the reverse direction from Ireland to Chinatown in London, which I think is kind of symbolic. Of so the not answering the debate. question then.
1: <laughs> so, <is> it, <laughs> not answering saying?
2: the question at all and fundamentally getting the analogy wrong. But what Boris was trying to say there was, he said, I never like the word austerity, he said that back in 2012, David Cameron had said to him, we need to have an austerity Olympics, and he said, no Dave, come on we can't have that mate, we've got to have this a big glorious Olympics and he gets a huge cheer for that and it comes back to this feel good factor I think is the key thing here that the Conservatives have just been beating themselves up and these members they've seen the Brexit party come and take all their voters, they've seen the rise of Jeremy Corbyn who they detest and they want a leader, a kind of a rallying force now and when you start to dig into the details of any of this stuff, no one particularly seems to mind or care about what they're saying. Because if you take the topic de jour, which is free ports. Pause- The economics and the ideas behind this doesn't particularly add up. It's not the sort of thing that is going to replace the lost steelworks in places like Teesside. But it could be an interesting thought. But the fact is, it's being sold as this grand thing that's going to save the whole of the region and reverse post-industrialization. Again, it's back to this emotion. And, you know, one activist I spoke to today who's undecided said, my heart says Boris and my head says Jeremy. And ultimately, at this stage, I'm going to go with my heart.
1: So, George, if we've set aside this kind of giant, cuddly Boris comfort blanket that they seem to see him as, what's going on with all these pledges on lower taxes, increased spending on everything? I mean, this week, the Johnson campaign made a big play on saying more money for the police. Mm. They've both said more money to reverse education cuts, which is something that hurt them at the 2017 election at a local level. They can't honour all these pledges, can they? Or do they think they've got some amazingly clever economic plan that will provide them some growth to do it all?
0: No, I mean, they can't honour all these pledges, and some of these pledges are completely fanciful. I mean, if you look at, for example, Jeremy Hunt's plan to cut corporation tax to 12.5p, which is the Irish rate, he says, well, that will pay for itself. Well, nobody in the Treasury believes that if you chop corporation tax at that rate, you will replace all the revenues with additional growth. So there's lots of um, made-up numbers here, and they're all focusing on this so-called fiscal headroom, which Philip Hammond has helpfully identified, which is meant to be an insurance fund against a hard Brexit. It's not actually money to spend. It's actually the posh way of saying additional borrowing. But both Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson seem to have relied on that as a way of spending money. But I suppose in a way you have to aim off a bit. I think people understand that in these kinds of leadership contests, people make promises, which in reality are never going to be honoured. An
1: aspiration, not a pledge, was the new (laughs) Labour speak for that kind of promise. Uh,
0: Exactly. And in fact, didn't Boris Johnson talk about his big tax cut for higher earners, which looked like a pledge initially, which was then downgraded to an aspiration as well? And bear in mind, a lot of these things will be impossible to deliver in the context of this Parliament. We often forget that there is the arithmetic in the House of Commons, and we're soon going to have a Conservative majority, probably down to three, the Conservatives lose the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election, which we think they will to the Liberal Democrats. And that's with the DUP supporting them. Now, all of these promises are contentious. We've seen how difficult it is for any chancellor to get anything through the House of Commons at the moment. So really, what we're talking about, things which will be tested at some point in the context of an an election campaign, I think.
1: So Seb, it seems an apposite moment then to ask you how... Is George Osborne backing Boris Johnson? Because the former chancellor, the architect of austerity, now the editor of the Evening Standard, is enthusiastically behind the Boris campaign. It seems that all sorts of Tories who actually take that fiscal rectitude aspect of the Conservatives' USP very seriously, they're still backing Boris. Is this just because they see this as a kind of existential moment for the party?
2: I think that's exactly right. And some of the biggest cheers that Boris has got is when he said the country and the Tory party is in an existential crisis. And if we don't get Brexit resolved, then that's why we're going to do that. And when you looked at the editorial in the Evening Standard, when George Osborne backed Boris a couple of weeks ago, it said that it was because they thought he was the best route to a second referendum. Maybe, you know, that's taking a bit of a gamble since he's kind of ruled it out at every single opportunity. But it's also the fact that they think he's a one nation conservative at heart you <laughs> I remember when we were going through the debate about the NHS funding before Theresa May pumped the huge funding package into it last year and it was a senior Conservative peer who said to me look there are some facts of life and the fact of life right now is we have to put more money in the NHS or Jeremy Corbyn will win and I think it's a similar attitude to many other spending areas that if you look on police cuts for example all the leadership candidates when there are a lot more of them said police cuts have gone too far which is a very big dig at Theresa May there but Saji Javid when he was running. We're saying, let's have 20,000 more police. And Boris Johnson has now also got on that pledge as well. Of course, it does create this issue that if the Tories are going to start opening up the spending taps and piling up the debt and maybe loosening some of the deficit reduction rules, then they're really chasing Labour's tail on this. So when it comes to the next election, which as you're going to talk about later, could be very soon, what's the message of the country going to be? Because if it's going to be vote for us and spend a little more, then Labour will say, well, if you're going to spend more, why don't you vote for us and we'll spend properly and we're really going to invest in public services because they just seem to be leaving behind this idea of being restrained on spending in any way. But based on what the crowd wants to hear... The atmosphere has changed from the austerity years. It was 10 years ago when we were all in this together. Now it's just that's all spending this together. I think
0: think, think the other thing about George Osborne, of course, is, and uh, I think we may have talked about this before on the podcast, the golden rules of politics. Rule one being, if you're George Osborne, stay as close as possible to the next leader of the Conservative Party. And as people say, it doesn't really matter what rule two and three were, but rule four is don't forget rule one. And George Osborne will stay close to power. He is an ultimate courtier and... As we discover this week, he has aspirations to become the next head of the IMF and he will need the backing of the next prime minister if he's to succeed in that ambition, which incidentally I don't think he will because now we're leaving the EU, we will be without the endorsements of that that
1: powerful bloc of countries. So Seb, one tiny little final question to you. We saw Jeremy Hunt get into a mess this week over fox hunting. Is there anything that he can do, anything that he can pull out of the bag, any final crazy promise to the Tory faithful that could swing it for him?
2: I think that pledge was so bizarre. As actually one Conservative MP who was backing him just said to me, I think he thinks the Tory party membership is still in 1965 because the idea that he was putting forward... These come very socially conservative views on abortion and then the fox hunting stuff as well, which, you know, let us not forget David Cameron had in both the 2010 and 2015 manifestos that they would allow a free vote in the House of Commons on fox hunting. It never got there because of a the Liberal Democrat coalition and B. Brexit. And then in 2017, it was in the manifesto again. There was a big row about that, and it became a very viral topic online here. But you could see the slight desperation by Jeremy Hunt because he's trying to obviously connect with a big part of the party's base that still wants fox hunting but i don't think it's quite as big as he would like it to be for that to actually work that some of the people i've spoken to here and other conservative party chairs say with boris you kind of know where he is he's been quite consistent in terms of he's always wanted to spend more money he's always seen himself as a social liberal but for jeremy hunt what is he actually about what will he do as prime minister and he just seems very erratic you know like a union jack shopping trolley just going from side to side Side of the supermarket, knocking different policies off the shelves as he goes along. So I think. He probably will end up in this contest in a fairly strong position because I think he has done quite well at engaging with members about, you know, some more policy areas, and he does talk about policy quite a lot in these hustings. And I think really he will emerge, and this is probably the obvious choice to be some kind of deputy prime minister in a David Liddington-esque delivery role because on Brexit, Boris and Jeremy Hunt both now basically believe the same thing, and that's all that's going to matter for this next government.
1: So, James Blitz, thanks for popping into our blissfully cool studio here. Um, George and Seb have been writing this week about the likelihood or otherwise of a new PM, whether it's Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt, having to call a snap election this autumn. How likely do you think that is in terms of the potential constitutional chaos of them trying to resolve Brexit by October the 31st by the deadline and actually being forced in some way or indeed choosing to just go to the country?
3: Well, let's assume, first of all, that it is Boris Johnson, okay, for simplicity's sake. What I can imagine is a scenario in which Boris Johnson, in the autumn, either tries to get a deal, a revised deal passed by the House of Commons, and once again, as happened with Theresa May... It's refused by Parliament, or alternatively, he tries to take Britain down the no-deal road on October the 31st, and that's blocked by Parliament. And then in those two circumstances where he's blocked, he then turns around and he says, well, look, I've really got no choice here. I need to have a new election. I need a bigger majority. All of that makes sense. I could imagine that as a road he could go down. What I find more difficult, and George explored this in his story in the FT, is a scenario in which Boris Johnson comes back from the summer holiday and just declares, I'm in a honeymoon period, I'm a new prime minister, I immediately need to go to the country and hold an election. That I think is much more difficult for several reasons. One, he'd be going to the country without having done Brexit, which I think is a problem. Secondly, for that strategy to work, he has to do some kind of deal with Nigel Farage and the Brexit party in order to not split the right wing vote. And that's very controversial and difficult. Look at the performance by Anne Widdecombe in the European Parliament this week. That would be hard. And the third reason is what he'd effectively be saying is give me a larger Commons majority to push through Brexit. And that's exactly what Theresa May said in June 2017. And look where that got her. It was a completely failed strategy. So on the first of those scenarios, he's blocked by Parliament, yes, but I don't see him coming in trying to exploit some kind of honeymoon. It just doesn't make sense.
1: George, what's your view on that? Because this is the key thing, isn't it, really? And all of the gossip amongst MPs of all parties about, you know, how war ready do they need to be? Because is this really looming as an imminent thing in the autumn? It's really this question, as James said, of will Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt actually have a sort of electoral war of choice given where they are? And given that when you look at the opinion polling, it's gone completely crazy since we didn't meet that March the 29th deadline to leave the EU. And you've now got four parties in contention all clustered around this 20% level, the Brexit mm-hmm. party and the Lib Dems, much higher up than you would expect. And with Labour and the Tories really struggling to pull away from the crowd. So why would he go to the country unless he absolutely has to?
0: Well, I must admit, I was surprised to hear Conservative Party MPs, various summer drinks parties this week speculating that Boris Johnson could call an election of choice. In the circumstances you have just described, what seemed to be fairly mad, the opinion polls suggest that politics are in a complete state of flux, mm. very, very unpredictable. How could you possibly even countenance an election given that, as James was saying, in 2017, Theresa May tried to get a bigger majority, went into that election with a 25-point lead in some opinion polls. So (laughs) there's no lead, according to some of the latest opinion polls, with the Conservative Party over Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party. So it does seem to be an unlikely outcome. And I think it's more likely, if there was to be an early election, it would be forced upon the new Prime Minister. But the scenario goes that Boris Johnson gets a bump in the polls, a sort of honeymoon period that the 20% or so in the opinion polls which are currently in the Brexit Party column could switch across to the Conservative Party column possibly in the context of a deal with Nigel Farage. I think that's quite problematic for many Conservative MPs, the idea that Nigel Farage is dictating the terms of a Conservative Party manifesto. You can imagine a number of moderate Conservative MPs saying, that's enough for us, we're leaving.
1: I mean, that's the ERG on steroids, isn't it? You know, it's been bad enough a problem having a coalition with their own Eurosceptic right, let alone with another party.
0: Exactly. It's a very high-risk strategy. And um, the European Research Group Deputy Chairman Steve Baker said that's exactly what they would have to do. There are some Tory MPs who say that you wouldn't actually have to do that. You would. Someone said to me, Boris Johnson could say, I am the daddy, I am Mr Brexit, as the Daily Telegraph called him. I'm going to deliver Brexit. You don't need to worry about Farage, he's got no role in this election. I'm going to deliver it on a certain date and just go for it. And if you could add up the Brexit Party support into the Tory column, then you could see a potential victory. But would he do it? Would Boris Johnson risk becoming the shortest-lived and most disastrous Conservative Prime Minister in history? We're talking about him becoming Prime Minister at the end of July and possibly being out of office at the end of October. I mean, it's a very risky strategy, isn't it?
1: And James, as you were saying, it's also this question of can you as the Conservative Party go to the country without having done the one thing that Mrs May failed to do and that you now see is your number one priority, which is just to deliver Brexit in some form, because the conversation has ended up in a place where it's sort of deliver Brexit in some form, almost at any cost.
3: Yes. I mean, if I have, um, I don't know whether George would agree with this, but if I have a sort of central scenario, it's that Johnson will go down the road of coming in, going to Brussels, tweaking the political declaration, which is the non-binding bit that sets out what the future trade relationship will be between Britain and the EU, to basically say we will never, ever do a Norway-style arrangement or EEA, something like that, come back, and then through a mixture of lustre, charisma and obfuscation get those extra votes that it needs through the Commons. And then once he's done that in October of this year, then he's basically crossed a kind of Rubicon. We can't actually formally leave the EU until we've got all our legislation through. So independence day effectively will be around February March next year and then he's in a much better position. If that scenario works, he then holds a celebratory election in May 2020. I mean one of the things I think which is important to remember about this election thing is that if you go back to 1945, all the great landslides in British politics have been in May, June and July, when the country feels upbeat. In, uh, <laughs> in, in, in 1945, 1983, 1987, 97, 2001, all of them May, June, July, a little bit of historical knowledge there. Wow. Only <laughs> one prime minister since 1945 has won a big majority in an October election, and that was Macmillan in 1959. But October is a very bad time to hold an election in British politics, Wilson came back with very small majorities in 64 and 74 in an October election. Other than that, we hardly ever have elections at that time of year. We've not had a November election since 1935. We've never had a September election. We've never had a December election. So... (laughs) My money's on May.
1: Okay, thank you for those meteorological (laughs) insights into our political history. Your scenario that you outlined seems incredibly likely to me, I must say, particularly around the, the political declaration. Well, why wouldn't you try and do that? Yes, exactly. But how much does this then depend on the Labour Party as well and on Labour MPs? I mean, those few Labour MPs who voted for the May deal during its previous first three failed attempts to get through the Commons... Some of them are now saying they think the Labour Party should be allowed a free vote on this. There's massive pressure on the Labour leadership to change its position to a much more Remainy promise a second referendum position. You've got party conference season coming in September, where surely that Labour position will have to harden in some way towards Remain. How does he actually, given the parliamentary arithmetic, get this tweaked deal through? Or do you just think that the Tory troops... And the DUP will be enough? Or will he still be relying on those peeling off Brexity, Lexit Labour votes?
3: Well, one has to go back to the third time May lost the vote. Uh, She lost by, I think, a majority of 58. So Johnson has to win 29 MPs over, basically, to get it through. Now, I'm of the view that one of the reasons in the end why Mrs May couldn't get this through on her side was that people didn't want to gift Theresa May that victory because they thought she'd stay on forever. I think if Johnson produces more or less the same deal, MPs will know this really is it. I mean, <laughs> if they could turn May down three times knowing somebody else would come along and try this act. But if they turn him down as well, then on the centre-right side of the argument, you really are into second referendum territory, everything being up in the air. So I think that will give him a lot of support. Labour MPs, it's hard to say. I mean, yes, Labour in October may well move to a second referendum position, but whether that will mean that Labour MPs, backbenchers decide that they'll back Johnson. It's just hard to say. But my feeling is he'll get very close indeed if he tries to put a roughly tweaked deal down effectively a fourth time. And
1: George, I guess that comes down again to what's Boris Johnson been promising the different wings of the Conservative Party, doesn't it? To have this unity of people on his side to become the next Prime Minister from all different bits of the party, remain and leave. But he must have been promising those hardline Eurosceptics on his backbenches that he will deliver some of the things that they want. If he comes back with Mrs May's deal tweaked, Mm. what's his argument to them? And is he in danger of some sort of rebellion from the European research group like those faced by Mrs May three times?
0: Yes, he is. And I think the more mainstream pro-European Tories think that The scenario James has just described will play out, that he'll go to Brussels, put some lipstick on Theresa May's deal, as people say, and come back and present it to Parliament again. And George Osborne, we were talking about earlier in the Evening Standard, said opportunism knocks Boris Johnson, which (laughs) was quite quite a good way of putting it, that he will go for that. But what do the ERG, the hardline Eurosceptics, do in those circumstances? In their heads, they think that Boris Johnson is going to take us out of the EU without a deal. For them, that is the purest form of Brexit, a clean break out of the orbit of the EU Bear in mind that what Boris Johnson will be asking them to vote for if he goes down the route James has just been describing is basically the withdrawal agreement, probably with the backstop in it, plus £39 billion pounds of payments. So The vassalage. And the, the whole vassalage point. Boris Johnson did back it last time. So, he did. So, so did Rick's mark a lot of them. Indeed. So it's going to be asking to swallow quite a lot. But I think in the end, James is right. You know, Boris Johnson says in the hustings that politics has changed in the last couple of months after European elections, after the local elections, not just the Conservative parties, but the Labour Party, as he put it, both parties are looking down the barrel of a gun. And you get the impression now that there are some Eurosceptic Tories who didn't vote for the Theresa May's deal, who might be prepared to vote for a tweak deal this time. And as we've just been discussing, some Labour MPs representing leave seats who think if we leave this very much longer, the Labour Party will become an out and out remain party and my seat's going down the pan. So that kind of coalition, you can just about see it coming off and Boris Johnson blustering his way through and tried to explain why it really is a very different deal to the one Theresa May failed to sell to Parliament in back in March.
1: It seems to me that it's very difficult in politics always to imagine a different atmosphere <laughs> mm. because political atmosphere sort of dictates people's behaviour so much. So this scenario that we've been talking about kind of depends on the idea of an incoming Boris Johnson with a sort of sense of momentum and the optimism which Seb told us he was trying to sell to the Tory faithful in some way communicating itself to the House of Commons that you might actually be able to get over to the next stage out of this stalemate that we've now been stuck in for a considerable number of months. How much, James, realistically can that optimistic cell, the unity cell that Boris Johnson's been pitching to the Tory faithful in this leadership contest, translate itself into national politics in Parliament?
3: Well, it's not impossible. I mean, you ask a very good question about the way in which character will change reality. I think people are—I I think people are not unhappy to see the back of Theresa May. I don't think one can overestimate how big a change there will be in the mood at Westminster after she's gone. She's come to the end of a very tired, very monotonous premiership, and so I think there'll be an enormous amount of momentum behind Johnson just through the sheer fact of replacing her you can just feel how tired the end is to her premiership so that'll be a huge advantage to him but I go back to the point I said earlier the Tory party and the DUP could keep on turning down May because they knew there was one more twist to this game. They knew somebody else could come along and do something different. They weren't quite sure what it was, but they could do that. One critical thing was that if May had got this deal through, you could see from May's final weeks in office, I don't know whether George agrees with this, that if she'd got this deal through, she'd have hung on. She was not going to leave easily. Mm. And they didn't want to give her that. But I think, as I say, Johnson is really the last card for Brexit. If he can't do it,
0: it's not going to happen. And so that, I think, is the huge advantage he has. I think in terms of the atmosphere at Westminster, you're right that Boris Johnson's charm extends much more to the grassroots supporters, the members in the country, and people at Westminster are much more sceptical about Boris Johnson. Famously, he doesn't have a great relationship with other Tory MPs who can see through a lot of the bluster. But as James has just been describing, people are almost prepared to suspend their critical faculties on Boris Johnson because the mood at Westminster... It's beaten, not just the Conservative Party, right across the board. in a sense that nothing's happening and just the sense that something new might happen. I think people might be prepared to give Boris Johnson the benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that many people have such grave reservations about
1: his ability to do the job. I think that makes a lot of sense. And what, George, also about the Labour leadership who frankly would like to see the back of this stage of Brexit.
0: Yes, they would. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn certainly, if this could be resolved so he doesn't have to go down the route of it coming out overtly as a Remain party that would help him but some of the opinion polls this week opinion poll you go poll in the times the labour party in fourth place the worst opinion poll rating since the 1930s is that right some 18% department? yeah 18% incredible
1: i'm miranda green and you have been listening to the ft's politics podcast with george parker james blitz and seb payne down the line from darlington next week seb will be back in the presenter's chair but in the meantime my thanks to you for listening and to our producers anna dedder And Salome Perhaladze. If you enjoyed it, do think of subscribing and send us your feedback. And if you're not already an FT subscriber, visit ft.com forward slash offer for our latest subscriptions.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen